Farzi, if there is one general manager in the Ontario Hockey League that has the right to be absolutely furious it's James with, this glo- with this global pandemic, it is not James Boyd. <laughs> As the general manager in Oshawa, Roger Hunt, after that Phil Tomasino trade, I think he is still wondering, what if? Yeah, I think that uh, it is one and one A because Ottawa, of course, was loaded for bear after falling short the season before. And absolutely, the Jens looking pretty strong in the Tomasino trade. And of course, that means it's time to check in with Oshawa and our good friend Callum Eng. So has Roger Hunt's face turned less red? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's funny. We, uh, we caught up a couple of weeks ago and, and, and we talked about just kind of what, what the team was looking and trying to do, uh, you know, the next season that's coming up and all that. But uh, yeah, certainly it's not lost on the generals and their organization, like what they were trying to do going into what ended up being a completely eliminated season. And then another one that did not happen. So it's been an interesting time for that group, but uh, they're trying to pick up the pieces right now and, and see what they can do come this fall. You Take mentioned us- that, sorry, you mentioned oh, that conversation. Ahead. What did Roger say? Oh, Roger is like the most easygoing, kindest guy. Like, you know, you, you know, he's just, they, they just roll. Right. And, uh, he, he certainly, uh, wasn't, I think, um, I think he's well beyond it. I mean, how could you not be right? It, you've, you've been able to sit and refresh and talk to the league and try to figure things out, uh, over an entire year. And then the biggest thing for him, I think was closure was finally, and, and I talked to him kind of just after they decided to cancel the season. So, so this was some time ago, but you know, it was just, all right, well, we're done. We're not playing. We're not doing anything. And now we just move on. We know what the next step is. I think the hardest thing for, for any group, of course, throughout this whole time, especially teams that are hoping to play hockey, maybe teams felt that they were going to be competitive was the, what's the next step? When are we going to take it? And once the league did, then I think it was easier for the management to move on. Take us back, Callum, to the spring of 2020. Obviously, it was Ottawa's conference and and arguably Ottawa's league, but the Tomasino deal notwithstanding, the Gens were in the conversation at the very least. And and I think there had to be a sense of, we're going to get Tomasino now, we're going to get some playoff time with him this year. And then, of course, last year, the season that wasn't was supposed to be Oshawa's year and maybe even a Memorial Cup host. But that spring, when everything came to a screeching halt, what was what was the mood? What was the sentiment? You know, it's it's really hard to look back and and remember it. First of all, it feels <laughs> like so long ago. But it certainly, I mean, you get washed over right by just worrying about the players and your friends and family and like a pandemic, right? I mean, that's just kind of comes to the forefront. And everybody just forgets hockey for a moment. Um, but I think what was really instructive for the Oshawa Generals was 2019, which again also involved the Niagara Ice Dogs, where they traded many of, uh, you know, or a handful, of course, of their their top players, including Jack Studnika, to that team and, and, and made, you know, a version of many uh, Roger Hunt magic moves around the deadline. And then they went in and, and they beat that team with Bill Thomas, you know, and many other great players. And, and I think that was really instructive for the group in the sense that they felt like they were closer to being one of the best teams, at least in the conference, maybe in the league, than maybe others would have thought. And they managed to do something special. So, you know, fast forward almost 12 months later, you know, making one or two decisions and a big one with adding Phil Tomasino to try and get over that hump. Because after they beat Niagara 
in 2019, they got beat up pretty badly by Ottawa. And it's a standard OHL thing where you just, there's a team that's just way too good and you can't compete, but maybe they realized uh, a year prior or in that year, sorry, in 2019, that they were closer. And so 2020 is maybe a, a bit of a better shot they were thinking. And then the whole world stops. Todd Miller taking over behind the bench from Greg Walters. What went into that decision? Are you hearing? I'm hearing the main thing that the general is looking for, and, and this is what they typically do is they want OHL experience and, and credentials. And that definitely comes with Todd Miller long time as an assistant uh, with Barry, of course, and played in the OHL. So, I mean, that gets added, but I mean, what really stands out, I think overall is the number of head coaches that the generals added to their staff, uh, both as associates, right? So they have Curtis Foster, who comes from Kingston, spent some time as a head coach there, uh, well over 400 games in the NHL, which is something that always helps uh, to some degree, especially the player experience and trying to connect with the players uh, young as they are at this point. And then Dave Matzos, who comes from Sudbury and, and Hamilton. So that really stands out to me. I mean, you could look at that list and, and wonder, well, who is the head coach? Who are you coming in? You got to name a guy and and put somebody in charge, of course, and have a hierarchy. But yeah, Todd Miller comes in, but he's got some great uh, great guys uh, behind him in uh, two associate coaches with head coaching position. Not to leave out uh, Mike Hedden, who uh, we're less familiar with, you know, from the OHL point of view, but had a long pro playing career. He's going to start his coaching career with the Generals. So they got a full bench now. And I think the, the main thing is get some experience in there and, and really get some stability because you've got a group of players who haven't really played or have not played in the OHL in over a year and a half and have been through a lot, whether they've been with, whether they traveled to Europe to play or, or whether they just, you know, spent time at home, tried to get stronger, tried to get on the ice when they could, you need some stability and you need some guys who will, who will provide that. Having just come off the recent NHL draft, which actually I think ended five minutes before we started recording this podcast, <laughs> longest draft in history. Holy cow. They're always uh, long. Yeah, but not that I maybe not that long. I've seen first rounds like two hours long. I, anyway, uh, what can you explain the, uh, the, the Oshawa to Boston pipeline for us yeah. and sidebar, please find out whoever is, if you don't know, doing the social media for Oshawa and give them a raise. What a great account that is on Twitter right now. But anyway, the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Shout out to, to the people obviously involved in the, in the general's Twitter. They've, they've had, they've had some viral hits over the last couple of weeks. It's been fantastic. <laughs> Number one yeah. in the league by far in my, in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. Having some, some great fun. Um, but yeah, Brett Harrison to Boston 85th overall. Uh, really thrilled his dad. I know, I know his dad a bit. Uh, you know, big Bruins fan. He's very, very happy to see that. I mean, can you imagine that? But, but yeah, I mean, the the pipeline. I don't know. I mean, you, you notice this, right? There's, uh, the, it's the same thing, perhaps to some degree, with the New York Islanders for the for the Generals as well. There's a bit of a pipeline there and, and a connection. I can imagine. My sense is that you know you've been around scouts, right? You know they're in the buildings at certain times, and and the people in the hockey operations departments they just get to know the group and and how things run. I will say this, and I know every team says it about about their group, and the generals will tell you this as well. But I mean, there is a great deal of preparation and a high level of player performance that goes in. You've been down to that that uh, ice level in Oshawa. You've seen the shooting pad and the weight room and. The, the little track for the players to warm up and a director of performance at the generals just added a new one as an aside and Daniel Noble. So perhaps that goes into it. I mean, there's, there's gotta be some degree of, uh, of connection between the two places. There's a legendary connection, obviously for the Boston Bruins to, to Oshawa, but 
I mean, it's, I think it is just the relationship that develops and then, you know, it just starts to flow from there as they see performance in the players that they draft. I believe there was a Robert Orr that was taken in the NHL draft, it was. actually, <laughs> which I think is the greatest name ever. And I think that's the legendary uh, uh, connection that you're talking about, Cal. Yeah, <laughs> potentially. It's close. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago about Roger Hunt and having some history with the Niagara Ice Dogs. What's that rivalry like in the East? Is, or is there a rivalry? Because obviously Farsi and I don't get to see it as much mm-hmm. being in the Western Conference, but just the amount of star players Roger Hunt has sent to Niagara, there's got to be some kind of rivalry. Yeah, I think I think the rivalry stems mostly from the fans. I mean, to be honest, like I, I think... So that's part one. I think if you go into that building as an opposing fan um, and you hear the noise and the things that they do, uh, you know, the on ice crew, or I should say the events crew, they do things on the scoreboard. They do, they pound music. They, they do things to throw the other team off the game. And so if you're an Oshawa generals fan playing Niagara in that building, you're like, this is really annoying. This time we want to beat this team. Uh, I, I know fans, like you could just see it. They, they're cheering harder for the generals when they're in that building and, and so I think the rivalry is more fan generated. I mean, honestly, knowing Roger for five, six years and, and seeing him work, I think he's team agnostic to some degree. Maybe yeah. you could put a little asterisk next to the Pete's, maybe. But <laughs> he seems agnostic. Like, there's no like, hey, you've done a lot of trades with this team. What's going on there? Like, you know, how? what's your relationship with the GM there, et cetera? It's like, we don't care. Like, we we just want to make our team better and we'll do it with anybody and and if that ends up being a number of different teams based on, you know, the our trajectory together, then like we'll do it. Uh, so I think that's the main thing that, that comes comes to me. And it's why he's had success uh, with making a bunch of deals around the trade deadline, picks flying around and, and doing some things that people don't expect. It. When you talk about that trajectory, Callum, those of us around the Ontario Hockey League recognize quite easily the way the cycle goes and you build up to that potential championship season, which for the Oshawa generals could have, would have, should have been the season that we didn't get to play. And then following that, there tends to be a bit of a drop off until you get back into that cycle at the top of it. So what does that mean for the Oshawa generals coming into 2021, 2022? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that, you know, you've seen the development of even a player like Brett Harrison to get himself drafted. Ty Tulio just got named to the World Junior Summer Showcase or a period ago, right? That's starting in a couple days. So he's developed. He played in Slovakia in the offseason. He got a little AHL time in the offseason. So, I mean, it's anyone's guess, to be honest, uh, on, on what happens. Certainly, there's a little bit of a top-end uh level of talent that the generals may have lost, whether it's due overagers or, or players that won't come back. Uh, that being said, though, I, I think there really was a, a core that was stepping up. I mean, even Brett Harris, when we were talking a lot about him, like he really looked like a, a top line player at the end of, you know, the, the abbreviated season or the season that halted. He just looked really good. And he was a really young guy at, at that point. And so, you know, the development, will be interesting of, of the core and, and the players who, you know, emerged. I think David Jesus, who, you know, people remember his name very much, but I think as soon as he, you know, spent a rookie season in the league, you, you remember his play more than anything. I mean, he's a big, sturdy defenseman um, and the type of guy that the generals could build a core around. So 
I mean, it, the questions will be answered in camp, but more than anything, I think there is actually a potentially surprising core for the generals, whether or not they have enough top end talent to be the top of the conference is another question. So we'll see, but I do think that there will be a surprising uh, performance, I suppose, from some of the players who, who will have made it through this pandemic and come out the other side and remain in the OHL. You mentioned maybe a, an exception um, for the Pete's when it comes to Roger Hunt. What's it like being a general's play-by-play guy going into that arena in Peterborough? Uh, you know what? It's funny. You know, because you have to walk uh, the concourse uh, and you have to go to your booth there. Uh, and they, they do put you on the far end of the rink. So uh, they certainly uh, aren't necessarily, they didn't really think too much of us uh, when they decided to put the box there, but you're pretty much in the, in the zone, right? Just inside the blue line. Um, no, it's funny. I don't know how many, when you go into that building, I don't know how many fans were like recognize that you're the play-by-play person for the Oshawa generals. No one's ever said anything or, or pointed it out. I will say that, you know, as you know, you're, you're in that building that, you, you basically do your call over top of the fans. You're like just beside that back row of seats on the, on the near side. And you, you have to, you know, sometimes people kind of look at you and they're like, oh, I, I didn't know that this seat was going to be here. And I'm going to have to listen to this guy the entire time. It's really annoying. He's like spitting and shouting and doing this broadcast across. But no, no, no one's ever really said anything. I think it's more, uh, it's more directed at the ice. I think they're more concerned with the players and what's happening on the ice. So it's, it's been pretty smooth so far. The atmosphere must be something else, though. It's got to be different than a normal game. Yes, for sure. And, uh, you know, it has varied over the years, uh, depending on the competitiveness. But, I mean, the teams were tracking very, very similar for a long time. So, yeah, it's, uh, it gets loud. It gets very, very involved. The building, the way it is. Uh, you know, the sound reverberates in a very interesting way. It's an old building. So yeah, it, it certainly does turn up, especially in the playoffs when they've met. I mean, it, it certainly does become a bit raucous in there. And, and the rivalry is very much alive when the generals are in town. You talk about that broadcast location, Callum, and how you're basically right on top of the fans. We were just recently chatting with Matt Sukram up in North Bay. He referenced a game in Barrie where there is nothing between your broadcast location and the last row of seats. There was a time in Peterborough that even that little bit of glass at the front of the booth looking out was not there. Like there was, you could have re- you could reach out and touch someone quite yeah. literally. And the, and the, the back and forth was uh, that much more possible back then. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like the fans, they can obviously hear you. And yeah. then like, you know, and, and just for the people listening, I mean, it's the broadcast booth is directly behind a row of maybe 10, 10, 12 rows of seats. And then there's just the broadcast booth and obviously opens up and it's about 10 feet inside the blue line. And uh, there's a, there's a set of stairs that, that run up kind of beside it. Uh, but it's a pretty enclosed space, but like someone can just kind of come up to the edge of the broadcast booth and <laughs> lean in. And, and often, you know, there's an usher or two will just lean in and chat with you a little bit. Or, you know, if you see someone that, you know, they'll come up the stairs and chat with you a bit. So you're very much part of it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fun to be honest, because you feel like you're just in amongst the crowd uh, doing this game and just one of the people watching, even though, you know, what you're doing is getting broadcast, but yeah, it's an interesting building to be in and it's been the site of just some crazy stuff. And when those two teams go at each other, I mean, they really do. There's a, there's a lot more that you're talking about beyond the whistles than perhaps during the game. Callum, you talked about that. They might have a, uh, 
a surprising core and just depending on whether they have, you know, the top end talent to maybe get them over the hump. But what's the situation like in goal uh, in Oshawa? Obviously we know that goaltending rules, the roost of this league. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, like, you know, you had 32 games from Zachary Papatsakis uh, last season, last season. I keep saying that, uh, 2019, 2020, it's like 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can surmise so the thing with goaltending is, is interesting, right? Is like, do you bring in someone who is a little older, more girls have done in the past, or do you kind of lean on who you have um, in your system, whether it's Zachary Papadzakis, the generals drafted him in, in 2017. So you've got him and, you know, the funny, funny thing is, is, is that, if, if you kind of go on a team's website, you're kind of like, who are they putting their branding behind and who are we, who are we branding as, as the goaltender? And the generals don't always do that with a goaltender. They don't always put that kind of branding and support, but you'll notice that they have done that. Um, and I know in, in kind of following the story of, of, of Zach, who, who had some shaky starts for sure when he was uh, in his first season in the league, I think he is a big sturdy guy who they would look at. Um there, there is no one, though, frankly, who necessarily has the the pedigree or the caliber right now uh, in the within the group, um, like a Kyle Kaiser, who you would imagine could you're, that guy's the starter for sure. So we'll just we'll have to wait and see for camp, and and if there's anything else in the works for Roger Hunt and the group to bring somebody out, maybe an older goaltender, maybe somebody else uh, who who stuck around and developed, who's played elsewhere in the OHL. I, I think there just needs to be maybe a little more experience there at first especially game experience uh, in that position, but we'll see. That's the challenge. Sorry, Fresi, that's the challenging part right now. I, the way I look at it, because yeah. Papatsakis is an 01. So that makes him, this is his overage year. Yeah. Right. But his, his rookie season was an 18 year old. So you yeah. didn't really get to see him as a 19 year old. Now you're like, well, do we keep a guy like this is every team in the league is going through the same thing, but just with only getting to see, you know, a guy like Papasakis for one year and then missing out completely on his 19 year old season. And now you got to pick overagers. It's not a position that I'd want to be in. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm like tentative on the, on the answer there, frankly, is because I mean, <laughs> there's just so many things that we, we don't know about how teams are going to be thinking about what they're doing with their roster. Right. And Mm. you know, I, it's just so, and it's just the overall kind of observation about all of these young men is, I mean, they've, they've all lost a season and a half. It might as well be five years in development time. So who knows where they're going to be at and, and who is going to be available to fill the spots, but you definitely feel for them most of all, because especially in that position, you just need reps. You just need to go out there and, and see the puck and see the speed and make the decisions and learn. Uh, and that's been taken away from a guy like Zach. And so we'll see where he's ended up. When you talk about that core, that pieces of it that may surprise, when we checked in with Kingston not too long ago, the, the thinking there is that they might have one of the most dynamic offensive top lines in the league right. led by uh, Shane Wright and, and Zade Wisdom. And just mm-hmm. as an Eastern Conference broadcaster, Callum, we're a little bit jealous that you actually get to see Shane Wright this year because there's a great tragedy of the schedule that's conference-based. It's that fans in the West will not get that viewing of who might be, who probably will be, the first overall pick in next year's NHL draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, crazy to think about Shane Wright because when you know we saw him for the first time, he 
pretty much look like the best player in the league uh, that you would see on, on many nights. And, and you're just so surprised at how young he is and what he's doing. Um, yeah, it's a definitely fortunate position to, to be able to see him develop. People are talking about him. It's interesting because he was just so young when he came into the league and, you know, it feels like he's been playing forever, but he, ha- he hasn't. Right. And, and, uh, I like, I just, I really hope that for a lot of these guys a bit to what we were talking about before that, you know, they were able to, to do a lot and get better at the same rate that they would have, um, if they had had a full season this year and, and see where they end up. I mean, it kind of goes for everybody, right. Whether it's, uh, you know, young people in school who missed a lot of school from eight, nine, 10 years old, like there's, there's a gap in everybody's development, whether it's hockey, which is, as we've discovered, not everything in the world, uh, you know, there's a gap in people's development, whether it's school or learning, or, you know, in this case, playing hockey. So it'll be interesting to see who was resourceful enough to come through this and, and improve, maybe not at the same rate that you would have, if you'd played all those games, but to a similar degree. Yeah. 39 goals in your rookie season is a, Strong okay. start, I guess. Uh, Callum, this is obviously a, a podcast we call OHL Stories. You've gotten to cover quite a few big games and quite a few playoff runs in Oshawa. I think it's been a decade since they missed the playoffs. What uh, do you got? A couple good stories from your time in covering the Gens. <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 funniest personal one is like starting this gig in 2014, late 2014. And then the generals going to the Memorial Cup. That's shut up. Can we stop? That's, a, that's it. This is over. That's a what? Shane Wright start right there. That's 20, a Shane Wright start. I've been twenty years. Twenty. Come I know. On. And like everyone else in the league, being like, "Who is this guy?" And well, I mean, like, good luck and have fun. But like, how is that even possible? Um, so definitely being a little bit uh, still feeling a little wet behind the ears and and not really having much. Uh, much experience but going in and getting to do that i mean that's always my number one story uh in that old building and and going into the the colisee of course in quebec city and calling an overtime goal for the oshawa generals with anthony sorelli and and all of that and just like seeing the history in that building and the passion for the game from those fans so that's a good one i think um you know, the, 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 we're talking about 2019. I think that team and watching that team coalesce and take on a team that they, I think the players really wanted to beat uh, and did not like in Niagara and really feeling the energy from that group. That was a really interesting experience, I think, as a broadcaster. That was probably the first time where I had more of a relationship with the players who had come in, right? And, and, and growing up with the team, so to speak, you get the joy of seeing some young men come in at 15 or 16 year olds and, and grow into to young men or men um, as they go through the league. And so th- that was the first time where I'd had the opportunity to know those guys on a more personal level and see their experiences and, and really what they had gone through as a group. So that was unreal. I remember coming, coming, you know, going down to ice level after a few games to do my interviews and all that. And it's like, there's no chance this is happening. Like these guys are too excited about this and I can't, I can't get an interview in or, or whatever. But I mean, I think, I think overall, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a great group. They really take care of the people who work within the organization and, um, 
I mean, the fans in Oshawa is, is another thing when they get busy and, and they, uh, when that building goes off, it's, uh, it's really a joy to be there and just part of why we all do this, right. And why we go and why we get put in the time and, and get, make a lot of sacrifices to do it is, is for experiences like Niagara or going to Quebec city and, and being in those buildings. Real quick. Do you remember your call from the Sorelli goal? I do. Oh yeah. Really, really well. Um, and, um, yeah, I took a big risk. Um, so if you remember the play, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Tobias Lindbergh, big Swedish forward, drove into the zone. And he took a few players with him, and then he dropped it to Chris Carlisle, who's a little-known defenseman. You know, I think he's like a good, sturdy defenseman, and he was up on the blue line. And, and he saw something. Carlisle never, ever stepped up, ever. Um, and he glided 10 feet in, in, into the zone. And I came, I wasn't in a chair, I was standing, but I, I kind of went up on my tippy toes because I was like, Oh, Chris sees something in front of that net. And what it was was traffic with Tobias Lindbergh and, and Anthony Sorelli. And he just sent it toward the net. And I didn't necessarily see who took a whack at it, uh, which is risky as a play-by-play guy, right? It's a big moment. It's a potential overtime goal. I know the goal's gone in, but Tobias Lindbergh and Anthony Sorelli are both in front of the net. And they both whacked at it. And if you watch the replay, one of them hit it and one of them missed it. And it was Anthony Sorelli who, who banged it in. And I announced Anthony Sorelli as, as the game-winning goal and, you know, did the whole overtime thing. And, and, and frankly, it probably was my best call because it's my first season. And, and I'm sure, um, I'm sure I've, I've learned a lot and perhaps it would be better now. But mainly I took a risk and I, I was just like, I think that's Tony. I think it was him. And you just, you know, you're in the moment. You just go with it. And it's like, well, if I've blown the biggest call of my life, then uh, well. <laughs> Uh, so luckily I didn't and, and it happened and, and it was great. But I mean, like, I mean, just, uh, I'm standing next to Mike Luck, who's a you know, long time TV voice for the generals and, um, and wow, what, what, a, what an opportunity to do that with him and, and watch that. But yeah, you just got to go with it. You guys know you, you got to go with it. And if you feel like you saw it and you had a sense for it and you, you make the call and, and there it is. Well, if it's one thing I know for sure after this conversation, it's that when I grow up, I want to be just like Calaming. Come on, in La Colisee, calling a Memorial Cup overtime winning goal for the team that he broadcasts for. One of these days, Chris, one of these days we might just get there like Callum has. Listen, I'll take a trip up to the Sioux right now as opposed to Memorial Cup. I just want the games to get going here. I don't care. (laughs) I say that from my back deck with the sun shining, but you get my point. (laughs) We do indeed. Callum, you mentioned the the time that we put into this and the sacrifices that are made along the way. It's the middle of the summer, and you made time for us, and I think that speaks to the camaraderie in this league. We really appreciate you joining us on OHL Stories. Anytime, anytime, and, and we'll look forward to seeing you guys when and if we see at some point. As any OHL fan knows, there's been an awful lot of talk, particularly over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, about West is best and East is trying to catch up to the West. So that 2015 Memorial Cup championship for the Oshawa Generals was a a bit of a rarity, quite frankly, because the Eastern teams, prior to that, it was Peterborough that broke through. And before the Peets, of course, it was the Ottawa 67s back near the turn of this century. It just didn't happen a whole lot. So smart Alex, like me, liked to joke that it was the Western Conference influence that helped the 2015 Oshawa Generals to that Memorial Cup. Uh, And among the acquisitions, Matt Mistily from the Plymouth Whalers, 
Brent Peterson, of a former member of the Kitchener Rangers, joined that Generals team. And a couple of guys who played key roles came from the London Knights in Michael McCarron and Dakota Mermis. So it is that loose connection that we use with the Oshawa Generals look ahead to the next season to go to the London Knights and, along with that, one of the long-time voices associated with the Knights. He has been covering the Ontario Hockey League now for many a decade, and I'll never forget sitting in a media room in London between Pete James and the late, great Don Cameron, and I thought to myself, I have got 100 years of OHL experience beside me in this media room right now, and I just sat there and listened out of both ears as those gentlemen talked about the game and many of the greats that have played in it. So, because Dakota Mermis and Michael McCarron had played for the London Knights before winning a championship with the Oshawa Generals, we go back to London and the legendary Pete James in this week's episode of OHL Stories. You just used the word dinosaur, Pete, but that's not right. They call you the Dean of the Ontario Hockey League. Come on, that's a worthy title, isn't it? Well, they both start with D. I prefer dinosaur. because you know We're recording this on a phone. Yeah, you betcha. I don't own one. And never have, never will. My telephone's plugged into the wall at home. <laughs> Call me what you want. I don't care. Back here for a Knights hockey game, right. and they're one of their arch rivals anyway, the Kitchener Rangers right. in town. Yeah. Looking at this rivalry over your storied career, how would you describe it? Very intense, very good. Uh, some of the rivalries London's been in, like Windsor, you've had one team high, one team low. But London and Kitchener are usually on the same level. They're usually pretty good. Some years are exceptionally good. Uh, but mostly it's a good game because the teams are pretty equal in talent. Now, tonight they're missing some guys because of that ridiculous rule about the top prospects game. That's idiotic. Uh, when you got a kid from Kitchener that's, what, a 30-minute drive away from Guelph and two from London that's an hour and 15 away from Guelph, have to be there 48 hours before the game? Ridiculous. <laughs> Stupid. It's going to take away from the guy who buys the ticket to see tonight's game. That's who I'm concerned about. The guy that puts out the 22 or 3 bucks to watch the best, and he's not because somebody insists that some of the better players, and God knows if, if, if they don't know who the top prospects are by now, your scouting staff isn't doing its job. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Now, Pete, i got to come back to the fact that you still don't own a phone, which is great because I wish I didn't, but Let's talk about 40 years in this game. You traveled with this team. You covered the Ontario Hockey League as a broadcaster at home and on the road. So take us through a typical game day preparation and broadcast for you. We have to tweet and email and do all kinds of things on these phones during the game. What, what was it like for you? Back then, you brought your tape recorder, made sure you had a power outlet that you could plug into because I never trusted batteries in a battery-run tape recorder. And I'd interview Dale Hunter and say, uh, Coach, can you come into the next room with me? I got an outlet there. Yeah, let's go, Pistol. He always called me Pistol Pete. So, uh, yeah, let's go, Pistol. Now hurry it up. Let's get this thing done. And then I'd get the visiting code. Boo, tape recorder. And even you, Mike, are old enough to know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> even before the, the Hunters were here, like the, the broadcasting day-to-day yep. at the old arena, say, yep. what, what was it like for you? Same thing. You'd show up with the tape recording. I'd talk to maybe Paul McIntosh, who was a coach and general manager, or a God love him, a, a favorite of mine, Turk Broda, when he coached the London National. They had more laughs with Turk. Uh, but you just went about 
your daily duties doing what you do with different equipment. Let's put it that way. You had the uh, distinct honor, I would call it, Pete, of being the uh, master of ceremonies for the opening of both the old ice house (laughs) and what was then known as the John Labatt Center here in London. Take me through those two experiences. Yeah, well, the first one was in 1963. It opened uh, at the uh, the old ice house, Treasure Island Gardens, what it was called then. And uh, you missed you missed one, Mike. I closed that as well. <laughs> I I opened it. Did you turn I, off the lights? No, no, I didn't do that. Okay. Something else. I opened it. I closed it. I I was co MC for opening this one. One of my lines was, "Somebody else will be closing this one, not me. I won't be around for that." When you first came up into the media box here and got to see the vantage point, the mm-hmm. setup, and everything, and looking back to the time at the old London Arena. How would you describe the, where you called from that the old arena right. to now this place? Yeah, well, what they did here, the man who was, uh, was, was putting this thing together, basically, got the media together, print, radio, TV, and brought us up to this location and said, boys, here's what we're planning. What do you want? How can we change it? And I had some input there. I said, from the radio side, uh, all we'll need is a very workable space. We can put a little bit of equipment and make some notes. That's all we want. And with my hands, I extended them out as far as I can and said, we'd need this much and a little bit more. <laughs> and he said, fine. And that's what we got. And, and the, the, the print guys, of course, they wanted plugs in the, uh, so they could get their, their laptops working. Television, they wanted the cameras where they are. And we all have uh, very good broadcast locations here on the upper level of the press box. And so the, they, the, for once... The people who were going to use the facility were asked what they need, and then he came back a second time and said, here's what we've changed, and came back a third time and said, how does this final draft look? And it's perfect as it is now. It wasn't quite like this at the Ice House, if I remember correctly. Oh, no. God, no. Oh, no. Well, it wasn't bad. Uh, I mean, when they built that thing in the early 60s, there wasn't the mass media coverage that there is now. There was the local newspaper, Beat Writer, uh, very little television, uh, radio. There was always radio. Uh, uh, this league has has been blessed by very, by excellent radio coverage, and it's it, it's been existing as long as this league's existing. Uh, so so it, 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 we got what we needed. It just wasn't quite as sophisticated as it is here. I've said, and you know, the fans in Kitchener who really are heated about this rivalry, I think, get upset. But this is the top-notch building to broadcast from. You're, what you've described is absolutely right. It's it's the pristine location. And when we were here last, Chris and I were looking up in the rafters, and man, there's a, an awful lot of banners hanging up there. And we went through a bunch of them. And of course, there's one with your face <laughs> on it too, Pete. What? Come on, now listen. We're all in the same business here. We broadcast <laughs> hockey games on the radio. Yeah. But you will. You may not close this place, but that's up there forever. Ever, sir, what is that? What was that ceremony like for you? It was. Uh, uh, they got me by surprise. Mark and Dale. Uh, I knew they were going to do something. They said I had to bring my wife, my son, my daughter, which I did do. And then all of a sudden, uh, the lady who was in charge of game day uh, uh, events said, "Look up there, Pete," and they unraveled this. And I, it, it really did. It floored me. It was a shot right between the eyes. I had no idea. I mean, there's some talent over there. Brandon <laughs> Shanahan. Cicerelli, Marsh, Ramage, uh, uh, all the boys were there before me. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm beside Don Brankley, 
Uh, it really did take me by total surprise. Mike, I had no idea that was going to happen, and I was just flabbergasted. And, of course, thanked them very profusely and went on and said all the things you're expected to say. <laughs> it, it says next to your name, Godfather of Sports. Right. Where did that come from? That came from a man named Steve Garrison, a longtime morning show host on the radio station I was at, CJBK on the AM side of the dial. Uh, and Steve and I had had a professional relationship uh, for a long time uh, when I was at the, uh, the anchor at the television station. Uh, and when I went to join him after my TV days ended, he started one morning, said, we got the godfather of sports in London, Pete James, with us starting this morning and just carried on from there. So Steve Garrison, uh, morning show host, was the man who originated that. Okay, so whether it's the Dean, whether it's Pistol, whether it's the Godfather, here's the million-dollar question for you, Mr. Right, James, and, right. and that is this. Having been with this franchise, covered it for 40 years and since beyond, it since it began, yeah. How does a team go from three wins in a season, <laughs> the lowest of the low, to 59 wins in a season, the highest of the high? Well, I have always said, Mike, that everything, success ripples from the top. When you, I can remember interviewing Bart Starr, who you'll remember as a quarterback with the Green Bay Packers. Uh, he was there when Lombardi took over. And he said, the first, I said, how did he take an also ran into a champion? He said, he reorganized the front office first. The front office was just humming. He said, he even redesigned the letterhead. Uh, he did everything to get that just ticking like a, like a watch. Then he worked on the football team. It's the same here. The Hunter boys, they work so hard at what they do. And we've seen the results. And it's a continuing uh, success story for a league that's every year you're losing your top talent. Uh, but these guys never seem to re, uh, rebuild. They reload. So it, it's successful management. And that just rubs off. We have kids come in here. The three new kids that have come in here all said basically the same thing. Boy, we wanted to play here. And the mothers that I've interviewed after the draft, this is one place we wanted our son to go. So, I mean, it's, it's not lost. The success of this franchise isn't lost out there. Everyone involved in minor hockey knows about it. And I must say to your audience, Kitchener is the same way. They've been a successful team for a long, long time. Windsor is, is in that mix. Uh, uh, I don't worry about these too much. But those three clubs... London, Kitchener, the organization I'm talking about, of course, uh, uh, are, are, are to me the three best in in the Western Conference, if not the entire league. Okay, sorry, can I just go back to um, half a moment because I believe you said interviewed Bart Starr. Excuse me. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did that come to pass? It came to pass right here in London. We have a sports celebrity dinner every year. Fortunately, I was in on one of the founding fathers of it, and we invite the personalities from the world of sport. Uh, this year, it's coming up in a couple of weeks, Christine Sinclair, the best uh, Canadian woman soccer player ever is going to be here. But anyway, we had Bart up uh, to speak at, at that engagement. That's how I got to talk to him. Uh, he, was, he was doing the commercials. Some, some people of my uh, generation might remember he was doing uh, uh, commercials on television for Vitalis. My last question was a personal one, Bart, and he sort of frowned a little bit. I said, are you still using that greasy kid stuff in your hair? <laughs> and we both did what we're just doing now. We had a big laugh. Out of it. That's how I got to meet Bart. So Bart Starr is obviously up there, I'm assuming. But going back throughout your whole career, London Nights and Radio and Television, I'm sure you have numerous interviews that you can oh. remember and some big names. Who is the one person that you interviewed that you look back and go, wow? 
Yeah, I always wow at the Bobby Hort interviews, Bobby Hort, because I consider him the best hockey player I've ever seen. Uh, and, and Bobby was so gentle and so humble. And he was training here in London with the Bruins in the late 60s, early 70s, when they trained here every fall. He was 18 years old. And, and uh, you couldn't meet a nicer kid off the You just couldn't. And he, he just was a very... For a kid that was so good, <laughs> Gordy Howe was the same way. You I mean, the bigger they are... Uh, the more hum- humility comes with it. Bobby, Gordy, uh, guys like Bart Starr, very, very nice man. Uh, some of the heavyweight boxers I've, I've, I've done, like George Chevallo, uh Joe Frazier, uh, some of the other ones that I've... I, the only guy I didn't meet I, ever, I wanted to in my career was Muhammad Ali. I did George Foreman, was a real nice man, George. He had fists on him, my God almighty, they'd spread across the street, you know, and... <laughs> But anyway, uh, yeah, those, that's the kind of Bobby Orr. He's certainly up the top. Real quick, you mentioned Shivalo and Ali. I know you're a boxing guy. Yeah. Did Shivalo win that fight against Ali right time at the hospital? Uh, I was at ringside with a reporter from Sudbury, and Muhammad was just peppering him with, with, with punches. We said to each other, let's count him the next round. 75 punches Ali threw. Now, mind you, George blocked a lot of them, but... George was so tough. He had so much stamina. No one. He just kept wading in. No, he didn't win the fight. Ali won the fight. You know, Pete, you, listening to these stories, I mean, a lifetime in sports, but in its heyday, right? When, when a sports director and a sports anchor, broadcaster, just you did so much. You're talking Bart Starr. You're talking these, these boxing one matches. One for you. Of course. Jesse Owens. Oh, my goodness. Who won the two gold medals at the 36 Olympics. Uh, he ran against Hitler's picked man, the, the pure Aryan that was going to show everybody else how strong we were, Jesse beat him. And I don't you think he didn't get to meet Hitler, <laughs> but he said he gave me a great quote. I said, do you look back on those days? He said, well, he said, I'm having a lot of fun here in London today. I don't know what Hitler's doing, wherever he is. I hope he's having as much fun as I am. <laughs> and he, again, a very humble man for a man that was so good. And I said, did you get to meet your opponent? He said, yeah, he was a nice guy. He said, we were two runners. He congratulated me. And unfortunately, the opponent was killed in World War II. How did it all come to pass, Pete? A kid that grows up and starts in radio Hamilton. And then it was, I I thought there was some professional training in New York City. St. Catherine, St. Thomas, here we are. Yes, and exactly the same route that uh, our old buddy Donnie Cameron (laughs) took. Don went from, uh, I believe, uh, Prince Edward Island to St. Catherine's. To Kitchener, I went Hamilton, St. Catharines, to London, uh, and and I fell in love with this town. I've had opportunities to move, as no doubt Don has, as no doubt you will get, but I didn't want to leave. I, I didn't want to leave what I had, so I stayed, and it was a great place to raise a family like it is in Kitch and a lot of other places. What, what is it that kept you not only in London but in the OHL? You mentioned offers to leave and whatnot, but what is it about this league and, I guess, the city as well that kept you here? Well, the city, I just said, I love it here. I just, I just do a great place to raise a family. The league, I like seeing kids come in here as 16-year-olds and leave as men. And there's a whole there's a, a raft that's full of them. Guys like that, I love to see Brad Marsh, who I met as a 15-year-old, Rob Ramage, uh, to go on and... and Get the Corey Perry, have the careers that they've had at the top of their game. That that's the kick I get out of junior hockey is seeing the kids progress to the point that they are they're at right now. 
a lot of people ask us still to this day, oh, what's it like on the road? And I try to downplay the glamour <laughs> of it because there's not a whole heck of a lot. But it wasn't that long ago. What, seven, eight years you finished yeah. traveling with this team? Mm-hmm. But you're still here. Every time we come to London, we see Pete James. Yeah. Do you miss the road? No, not at all. <laughs> Bill, Bill Long, who coached here for a long time, he used to call the bus the Iron Long. And, and I always sort of laughed at that when I was a little younger. But when I got a little older, I didn't because uh, when you climb on a bus, and you guys do it, and you climb on a bus in Sault Ste. Marie at 10.30 at night, and you pull in the kitchen at 6 o'clock in the morning, there's nothing glamorous about that. And, and teenage sense of humor doesn't really get me anymore. <laughs> I mean, the kids laugh at things uh, that, that, that don't strike me as funny. And, but they're kids. They're 16 and 17, 18 years old. But, no, I don't miss the bus at all. Not at all. <laughs> What is it that keeps you coming back to games each and every night? I love it. I just love the game. I love junior hockey, as I've said. I love to see the kids come in here as children and leave as adults. Uh, that's, that's the progression. I like to see, I like the competition uh, between the teams. Uh, I sometimes think that there's a little more emotion in the junior game than the pro game because they're all making tons of money. These kids aren't. They're trying to make tons of money, and very few of them will. Uh, make the kind of money that, that, that a lot of them in the NHL make. But they're all giving it a try. They love it here and uh, wherever. And I mean here in the OHL. Kitchener, Windsor, wherever. Pick a spot. Sarnia. So that's what, that's what turns my crank. You're watching the kids come in young and go out as men. We've talked about a lot of the players that have come through this franchise, and I know it's like asking a favorite kid, <laughs> Pete, but is there one that really stands out, or a team, maybe that 0405 team, yeah. you know, that really stands out to you? Yeah, that one does for sure. There was a 77 team that had Marsh and Ramage and Pat Riggin in goal. Uh, Dino played on that team, Dino Cicerelli and a few others. Uh, they, were, they were very, very good. Beat the Hamilton Finn Cups huh. in Game 8 of a best-of-seven series. Kid named Danny Eastman scored the winning goal in overtime. That just sent the entire city in, into a, a human emotional tsunami. And uh, that, that's, uh, again, going back to, to watching these kids play and get emotional. As I say, the emotion at ju- the junior level is much better to me than the, than the NHL because they're trying to get the NHL. Or the, the guys up there are there. But no, that, that 77 team, the 2005 team, uh, and and uh, the, a couple of years ago, when we had uh, Kachuk uh, and uh, Marner uh, you know, on the other side of Dvorak, that was, that was a pretty good team, too, <laughs> and won a Memorial Cup. It, we kind of alluded to it, but if you were forced, and I'm just going to re-ask it, kind of, mm-hmm. if there was a player that, if someone were to ask you, who was the best player you ever saw play for the London Knights? And it's hard to compare generations to generations and whatnot, but is there one that every night that you just looked at and you were like, holy, jumping? I, no, I, I, I can't. <laughs> a few years ago when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, those of us who work at the Rogers Outlet here in London put together the all-time Knights team, three goalies, six defensemen. Dennis Weidman was on it, by the way. Uh, and uh, 12, 12 forwards. Uh, that's the best I can do. Uh, I, uh, a, a kid like Dennis Marouk comes to mind because he was a small man in a huge man's game. Never bothered him. Never. He went out, scored goals, did, did things. Pat Kane. I remember interviewing Pat Kane the spring he was drafted. I said, are you coming to training camp in the fall? He said, you know, I don't know if I'm big enough to play in the OHL. 
<laughs> that, that was the summer they changed the rules and made this a skill game rather than a size grunt and groan game. And Patty came in and got about 60 goals and was in the NHL the next year. So I love that when they made it a skill game because that's what it is. But I, I can't pick out one guy, sorry. No, it's allowed. So do you do you like the way the game has evolved to what we're seeing today compared yeah. to those rough-and-tumble games, yes. teams in the 60s and 70s? Yes, I do, because yeah. I can remember coaches asking scouts when they're going to take player, can he fight? That was a question, can he fight? And I said to myself, what the hell's that got to do with putting a puck in the net? And I talked to another scout. He said, no, what I look at is can he win face-offs? Can he set up goals? Can he score goals? Can he kill penalties? How is he in the power play? But there was a time when, and Bill Long used to say, you could see the draft go from six foot two down to five foot eight. Uh, everyone took the big guys first, and some of them were good. But size meant more than skill. Now it's the other way around, and I love it. Going back quickly just to Pete James, the person. Before you got into broadcasting, growing up, were you the type of person that sat at home and would watch hockey or listen to hockey on the radio and, and call the games yourself? Yes, I was, as a matter of fact. And I said to my parents, the first thing they asked me post-Santa Claus was, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, a radio. Uh, and, and they gave it to me. And I sat and listened to that thing hour after hour in my room bedroom and and said one day i'm going to be like that guy from new york i was listening to you, a man from new york and i'm in hamilton i said mom that's going to be me someday and of course there was the usual parental chuckle uh, no one was prouder than my mom when i made my first broadcast in st Catharines, by the way yeah. almost right down the road was that yeah. foster hewitt is that who you're listening to or who, who anybody a- anyone yeah. yeah was there a play-by-play guy that you that you really liked growing up foster obviously yeah. growing up uh uh, because that's who we listen to, uh, the Leafs, on Saturday night. I mean, and then it transferred to television, and uh, we watched uh, Foster and the crew. Uh, but, uh, no, I always, from from my infant years, my childhood years, I wanted to do what you and I and, and what we're all doing right now, be on the media. Well, we've got a game to watch here tonight. I can't thank you enough for your time on this, Pete. It's been a lot of fun. Well, the fun's all mine, and thank you so much for asking me. I'm flattered. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.